Welcome to this SpeedSM podcast. And I always love a chance to talk to special guests. And today is a particular highlight because Chad Cook has really done such a remarkable amount of work. I think there are four or five people working under the one name, but uh, he claims that he's done all this work himself. Chad is a professor. He's a physiotherapist. He's currently at uh, Duke University and has a history there over a substantial window. He's written books that many of you will know, orthopedic physical examination tests, orthopedic manual therapy, and also a book on called 100 Orthopedic Cases. He's a popular international keynote speaker, and he says one of his highlights was at the Australian Physiotherapy Congress in Melbourne in 2013. And that's a strange place for a Canadian editor of BJSM, but I'll go along with it for now. Chad, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. And we're going to talk about physical examination tests, assessment. And I think you're going to unsettle some of the listeners who are comfortable with their diagnostic tests and who haven't come across your work before. How did you get into the area of thinking about physical examination tests, assessment in more detail? I think I'm like a lot of people. I, I I had a clinician background. I was a clinician in the background, but as an educator, I really struggled on selecting the best test to not only use in the clinic but to teach our students. And was I was very frustrated when our students were going out and doing their clinical affiliations and they were receiving feedback from some of the clinicians that they should have learned you know, test A or test B or test C, which we uh, felt weren't very strong, so we, we myself and Eric Hegedus, uh the co-author of the textbook, decided to write a book that really outlined the appropriate metrics of these tests to, to, to almost give a hierarchy of special tests. And what was the first one you focused on? There must have been one that sort of triggered the whole thing. What was that one? It was probably the active compression test. The, the, it used to be called the O'Brien's test, and it was a, it's a test that's advocated for both a shoulder label tear, but also for an AC joint injury. And we had only found one particular study that supported that test whatsoever. It was the first study, and multiple, and it's been up to 15 papers now that had suggested the the study actually has limited value in diagnosis, but it's still very commonly used in clinical practice, and, and it just frustrated us so much that the the clinician in clinical practice didn't really know the truth about this test, that it probably lacks utility. And how did you go about proving that? Well, we used test metrics, um, and this is really the only way that we knew um, to somewhat normalize uh, special tests. We looked at the sensitivity specificity and likelihood ratios, uh, but went a step further and actually evaluated the quality of the publications because we found that there was a, such a significant variation in the test metrics depending on the bias that was actually within the reporting or quality of the studies. And uh, in fact, we felt it was a nice way to help justify why you might see these highly variable scores on sensitivity and specificity among tests when um, they're basically studied in the same population. 
Yeah, and can you take us through that um, a little bit more in detail? So listeners thinking, well, this paper in the American Journal of Sports Medicine looks pretty good, like 318 patients, and it's got a good sensitivity and specificity according to the authors. So what's the problem? I think there are a lot of problems, and, and some of the problems aren't uh, are problems that aren't going to be corrected just because it's the nature of the beast with diagnostic accuracy studies. There are so many different things that can influence a particular metric on a test and measure. For example, the, the population that it is studied in can markedly influence the test metrics. And just the fact that most of the studies involve individuals that are maybe in a surgeon's office so they can actually do the verification on the particular diagnosis that the person has, this is a very different population than what a lay clinician might see in their clinical practice. And, and whether those numbers are applicable in that different practice environment, it's very questionable. So I think that's you know one of the many things. The other thing is is that there are just key components on how to set up a diagnostic accuracy study that aren't always followed because they're costly. And diagnostic accuracy studies always require either some form of imaging or surgical verification, and that alone is going to include costs that are more so than many other clinical studies. And these are typically not funded either. So in many cases, people are doing these studies and self-funding them and doing the best they can, but they need two different individuals, one person who does the particular tests and measures and maybe another individual who does the verification of the disease who is, and each have to be blinded to one another's results. If you don't see that, that often leads to significant biases within the study. And are there challenges in getting the gold standard in any case? Oh, there really is. And, you know, there are so many different levels of a reference standard that can be used. Um, to give you an example, usually surgery is the uh, reference standard, is the gold standard that's used for most, uh, for example, shoulder problems. Arthroscopic surgery to go in and confirm the presence of a rotator cuff tear or something of that nature. And at a level lower than that would be clinical findings and imaging confirmation. Uh, it does well, but it's not quite the same level as surgical verification. There are many studies that use just imaging alone. There are many problems with that. Just it, We often find things on imaging that are asymptomatic, but it may bias the particular metric within the that test and measure that's actually studied. And the biggest problem is when you deal with syndromes. Um, and in that case, it's primarily a clinical diagnosis. And it's a cluster of signs and symptoms that are collectively put together. And using that as a reference standard will often yield all kinds of different results. And in many, many cases, you'll see variabilities in that special test finding. And Chad, before we get on to examples and what's best for shoulder and knee, for example, hip, um, before we leave the syndromes, what's an example of a syndrome when you're saying that that's a tricky area? You know, I, I think I would go with patellofemoral pain syndrome. Uh, first of all, you, if you put 15 scientists in a room and uh, required them to agree upon a specific reference standard for that, it, it's unlikely they would agree. 
in the literature, there's there's great variability in what one defines as patellofemoral pain syndrome. So in many cases, the the actual reference standard used incorporates many of the same test findings that you would want to investigate toward diagnosing the condition. It's called an incorporation bias. So problems with sit-to-stand, problems with stairs, problems with functional activities, and anterior knee pain, that's commonly used as the diagnosis. It doesn't really have a surgical um, verification for this or an imaging verification. So those particular test components are part of the diagnosis, and that leads to a great deal of bias. Okay, so clinicians are driving to work, enjoying our podcast, sharing messages on Twitter, but they want to know, okay then, what's the bottom line? What's, you know, help us with your knowledge. Assessing the shoulder, for example, the patient's going to come in, they've fallen on the outstretched hand. It's not an AC problem. They're thinking it, in the old world it would have been a labral test and they would have gone for the O'Brien slash compression test and now they're worried. Help, help us out. Okay. Um, I'll just say this, and it, at first it may not be comforting, but over time I actually think it's useful, is making a correct diagnosis for a slap lesion is actually quite difficult. Now, I think in the rare occasions where it is fairly straightforward, fallen outstretched hand, younger individual, fairly traumatic, um, you may be dealing with a, a maybe a Snyder's classification over three or four, in those cases, within the literature, most of the tests and measures actually do fairly well. But the higher prevalence of slap lesions are probably the ones that occur maybe at blue collar or, or they're associated with degeneration, or maybe it's the middle-aged individual who went out and worked too hard in the backyard. And those folks can have slap lesions too, but then maybe they're a Snyder's classification one or two. Those individuals really don't represent any differently on a special test than someone with a rotator cuff problem or impingement or, or, or something else that has a very similar clinical presentation. So it, it really depends, and that's where it gets tricky. In, in those cases where, it's, where the clinical presentation is very clear, the special tests do very well. In those situations where the, the clinical presentation is more vague, they don't do well at all. But when they're all mixed together, that's one of the reasons why the special tests don't do so well for things such as slap lesion. And so with these not-so-special tests then not being so helpful in the situation when you might need them most, what do you recommend doing in the clinic, Chad? Well, I, I recommend two things. The first thing is um, I always don't rely too heavily on one specific test, a standalone test. I know that the tests have limitations. So I look at the full presentation. That includes the patient history, the movement examination, and other factors that come up. And in full recognition that things will change throughout the course of care of that patient. The other thing is, 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 is being a physio, I'm somewhat blinded by that. Um, I, I tend to identify those impairments uh, those limitations that the patient presents with, and I will often target those even while being in doubt of what the actual diagnosis is. Now, in, and I want to point something out, is that we often think that um, 
then when a person goes and sees a physician and they go through their examination, that they they receive a diagnosis that is pretty set and is pretty solid and fairly accurate. Um, I manage databases for a number of groups, and one is a surgical group in the United States. So I have the capacity to track a diagnosis at the first clinical visit all the way to a post-surgical diagnosis. And I tracked a a group of uh, shoulder surgeons to see how consistent that initial diagnosis was toward um, from that first office visit to surgical care. And there was only 32% of the cases where the initial diagnosis stayed throughout that whole care management of that patient. In many cases, the surgeons would change their diagnosis based on additional information or based on going in and looking at the case in surgery. It's really not all that uncommon. And to me, that was very calming as a physio because you don't always know on that first visit what you're dealing with. And it may change over time, and and the presentation may change too. So what I'm hearing is that the multiple tests are helpful, being aware that these conditions change over periods of time. You're going to see something a bit different um, depending on the time course and that you're actually not so wedded to the tissue diagnosis but you're treating impairments. Are those sort of midpoint summaries reasonable, Chad? I think they're very reasonable. I think there are certain areas of the body that this is quite useful to have this philosophy with, certainly the low back when in which we often don't know the tissue that we're dealing with. The shoulder um, I know a lot of people don't like to think this way, but the shoulder is also similar in that nature and that we often don't know the actual structure that we're dealing with because in many of the earlier phases, the overlap in clinical presentation with an impingement or a rotator cuff tear or, or whatever it is so extensive. There's a very nice paper that was published in JBJS where they used the same special tests for individuals who either had impingement or a rotator cuff tear, and the same special tests were diagnostic for both conditions, even though they were technically dissimilar. Um, I think we'll see that in a lot of cases in the shoulder, that most of the special tests will be rather sensitive for many of the conditions. So then as a treating clinician, by getting going and fixing impairments, you'll be able to almost confirm the diagnosis through treatment rather than through say, MRI? Yeah, and, you you know, MRI is actually somewhat useful to help identify a lesion, and and I'm certainly not suggesting that it isn't important to identify a a particular diagnosis, for example, a a massive rotator cuff tear or um, a type 3 or type 4 slap lesion or or something of that nature. Those things are worth teasing out and and using imaging and, and doing... Uh, good groundwork on. Um, But I think that the majority of the cases that most clinicians see, uh, they can probably do just as well not specifically knowing the diagnosis, not maybe ordering imaging for um, whatever it is they're looking for. They can still treat that person quite well. And with some of the new emerging research coming out suggesting that Conservative care for even even those people with relatively significant rotator cuff tears, conservative care is, is still quite useful, and and maybe just maybe just as useful as surgery. So I think there are a lot of things um, that are going to be outside our initial knowledge when we assess that patient that 
whether or not the special test can discriminate, we can still effectively treat that patient population. And really, I see this as being revolutionary because we're going from a model, a traditional, if we call it medical model, of making a diagnosis before you start treatment to a model where we're saying on a population level, the bulk of the injuries aren't going to be that severe. There's going to be overlap in their presentation and then it's a reasonable to treat um, according to the observations that you find and almost use that before you're getting into a diagnosis. So it's almost reversing in, in an extreme case you're saying assessment, treating and then getting to diagnosis. It is and I know it's not popular with many people. I, I get a lot of odd looks um, when I mention this but it's you know it's some it's the truth and it's reality. It's what happens in the clinic all the time and it's also a it's it, it, it's it's a, a fact of life with respect to these clinical special tests. Uh, Eric Hegedus, one of my colleagues, just published a paper that he looked at clustering of tests in the shoulder. And by looking at more than one test or uh, a number of things together, it certainly does improve one's ability to make that diagnosis. But if we rely too heavily on these single special tests that have been advocated for years that are in the textbooks um, that are often used to help confirm what we think, um, then we're going to make mistakes. Whether we think we're making mistakes or not, we actually will make mistakes. And we'll wrap shoulder in a minute and move to knee and uh, hit this a couple of tests. But the clinicians, the cluster of shoulder tests, which ones would you recommend people consider most um, useful? You know, it depends, and this is one area of the body um, where researchers, clinical researchers, have actually been clustering for a long time. Uh, we were surprised at the amount. I bet you there are 15 different studies that have looked at clustering. Um, they're outlined in Eric's paper. It's in Physical Therapy and Sport. Uh, just was just out about a month and a half ago. I'm, I'm one of the co-authors on that. Um, so rather than going by memory and, and identifying which ones, I would actually uh, pull Eric's paper because he summarizes every single one in the tables. Um, and they cover all the different areas, even even areas as difficult to diagnose as uh, labral tear. Uh, certainly there are several for a rotator cuff tear, and there's even one for uh, acromioclavicular joint problems too. Cool. That sounds like a good plan. And uh We'll take care of that on the website as well to alert people to that paper in physical therapy and sport. Um, let's move to the knee. Um, you touched on patellofemoral pain earlier as an example of a challenging area, but let's go there to, to close off that particular condition. What are the most useful tests if a clinician is considering patellofemoral pain? So on our end of it, we... We published a systematic review in 2012, I believe, in, in physiotherapy, um, and we, out, we basically summarized all of the studies that have investigated the special tests for patellofemoral pain syndrome, and the best tests were always those tests that were associated with functional movements, uh, sit-to-stand pain, uh, stair-climbing pain, uh, pain with uh, resisted extension, 
So these were, in, in most cases, they were functional in nature and not truly special tests. Some of the tests, such as Clark's test, which is the scour of the patella, uh, the positioning of the patella itself, uh, none of these did very well. And uh, so it was a bit surprising. Now, one has to use that information with caution because in many cases, those functional tests were actually built into the diagnosis too, so there was incorporation bias. But there really is limited research in this particular area on patellofemoral. So if you ask me which were the best tests, I would say, well, they're not really tests. They're more activities that reproduce the patient's symptoms, stair climbing, squatting, things of that, of that nature. Yeah, and uh, I think that's a trend, isn't it, that functional tests are proving to be more valuable than some of these static tests? Absolutely, yes. So obviously very important clinical scenario, acute knee injury. Someone has um, twisted the knee and suspicion might be a meniscal injury. What do you think about there? I think the Thessaly's test, if you're looking at a lateral meniscus, the Thessaly's has now been investigated in four studies and has done quite well. And these are four really high-quality studies because they've been performed recently when we've had better reporting standards. Uh, people have followed the STARD uh, guidelines for, for actually managing the study. So I would think Thessaly's test for that, I think a medial meniscal problem uh, with some of the special tests that we have, it's a little bit more difficult to use for diagnosis. Something that is traditional, such as McMurray's test, which has been around since the 40s, um, it really depends on how the test was performed in the study that it was investigated in. Um, but it's, in some studies, it does quite well. In others, it shows limited value, and it probably depends on the population that was investigated in that study. And, you know, for those who have just quickly Googled Thessaly's test, do you want to just take us through it and explain why you think it is better than the traditional McMurray's and probably hasn't been taught as much as McMurray's, would you say? Correct. And, in fact, uh, when I present this, and I, I, I do have the opportunity to speak, you know, all over, all over the States and Canada and then around the world, too, when I introduce this, most people are not familiar with it, but it's a load-bearing test, and I think that's why it actually captures those meniscus problems more effectively. I think it captures more of a degenerative meniscus problem as well as um, a traumatic. But the person is standing on one leg. They're using the clinician to help balance themselves, so they usually put their hands on the clinician's hands. They'll stand on one leg. They'll bend their knee to approximately 20 degrees, and then the clinician will walk around the patient, forcing them to twist on their knee. So you get a lot of tibial and femoral movement into a twisting pattern while loading, and you get and a positive finding is a click with that. So it, I think it does a nice job of replicating what would normally happen with a patient, how would they, the, the type of uh, a positive finding that would happen in a functional activity or a real-life activity, and that's why it's done fairly well, or that it's uh, done fairly well within the literature. And did we mention, like, the twisting change of direction injury where one thinks it's an ACL? Yeah, you know, um, ACL, as far as the special test, it's one of the few areas where the old tried-and-trues continue to do very, very well. So certainly we have both. So you may want to assess using Lachman's independently or the anterior drawer or the pivot shift. All three 
have done very, very well independently in the literature and have been investigated by multiple studies. Even in meta-analyses, they, they stand up. So that's one of the few areas, as I mentioned, that the, the, the special tests are actually quite good. And just on the pivot, though, it can be tricky if they've got a fair bit of derangement, right? They don't like you doing the pivot? That is correct. Um, of the three, I think it's definitely the most difficult to do. Uh, you usually get one shot at it, it if you if you get that one shot at all. Um, I think the pivot shift, I mean, this is my personal opinion, that if you have a person that has more instability in the knee, maybe a posterior lateral corner instability, the pivot shift really becomes even more valuable in that particular situation. Um, but it is, I think, operator-wise, it's probably the most difficult one to do. And I think also to get a clean finding, it's probably the most difficult. And we're talking about the physio setting. We're not talking about in the orthopedic um, operating theatre under anesthesia. We're talking about practical tests for our clinician listeners to use in the office. Chad, let's move to hip. It's a tough one. And Mike Raymond's touched on it, and we can direct people to his um, podcast and BJSM and, and other resources. But just to wrap it up, um, what's the scenario that our listeners can hear from you about examining in the sporting hip where we're considering potential, say, labral injury, FAI, the typical sporting hip? Well, it, you know, I've listened to Mike's podcast. Mike is about uh, eight doors down from me because I work with him and I fully agree with his consensus on this. And uh, what, you know, I had the chance to be a co-author with Mike on his paper in your journal. I, I truly do believe that if you want a black hole of special tests, of tests that really have limited utility, it's at the hip. Um, I think there have been a lot of tests that have been created that have assumptions that they are supposed to influence this post-test probability and have clinical utility in making decisions, and I don't think any of the impingement tests truly do that. And it was unique. We, we found the, most, the best test that we found in our meta-analysis uh, to have value based on the literature was the patellar pubic percussion test, and that's a test for hip fracture. The majority of the other tests had limited utility to the point where we could not even advocate for them. And I know that in a systematic review, it's customary to say, hey, we need more literature and we can't advocate for this. But in this particular case, it was easy to say that we cannot advocate for these because they just did not do very well within the literature. So I think if you, if you were comparing, you know, what, what sort of guidance can we give clinicians at the hip and compared to what the literature states in the knee, the knee is much clearer, and there are tests that we can easily advocate and, and support. But at the hip, outside the patella pubic percussion test, I would, I would use extreme caution, especially with this new trend toward diagnosing uh, FAI. Yeah. And that's a whole bag of worms, of course, um, which is on Mike Raymond's podcast, as you say, and will be continued in BJSM podcasts and on BJSM and other channels like the papers and the YouTube videos and things. Chad, I have to ask you to briefly explain the patella pubic percussion test. This is a test, um, if you have a suspicion, and it's usually 
you know, I, when I teach this, I, I give the scenario of if you're in a hospital environment and maybe that morning someone tried to get up on their own and they fell, and rather than rush them off to imaging or something of that nature, it's a quick test that you can use on a patient. If you have a stethoscope, you actually put the stethoscope over the pubic symphysis of the patient, and you can either take a tuning fork or tap the kneecap of the patient on the unaffected side and compare that to the affected side. If you use a tuning fork, it's quite easy to, to hear as that vibration runs up the leg across the hip, across the pubic bone into the stethoscope. Um, it's a high-pitched ring that you hear on a normal hip. On a fractured hip, that sound is markedly attenuated. And you would think that it's not very clear. There's no way this could be that easy to hear. It is so easy to detect this. We had colleagues in Uganda, their swing arm x-ray had went down a while back, and they were making hip fracture diagnoses based on the patellar pubic percussion tests. To my knowledge, there are four studies that have looked at it. The negative and positive blockhead ratios are fantastic. Uh, this is a surprisingly great test to use. And I can see clinicians using it who may not have access to quick imaging to help make decisions in, in a particular uh, emergent environment. I think has a lot of different opportunities for use. Do you need to be a little bit careful how you explain to the patient what you're going to do to them? You do. And, and you certainly have to have the patient's approval before you stick the stethoscope on their pubic synthesis. But typically, if they work with you on this, um, it, and they're not someone who's obese because you, you have to be able to put the stethoscope on the, uh, on the bony prominence of the pubic synthesis. Uh, but once you do that, actually, it, uh, it works quite well. Okay. Well, never a BJCM podcast at a dull moment. That's a great story and most importantly, very useful practical test that we can take away, Chad, on top of all the other comments you've made. Why don't you summarize with the take-home messages as folks are getting into the clinic after listening to this podcast in their car? Well, I, the thing I want to summarize, I think, is that, and I know I sound a bit gloomy when I talk about special tests, and I've actually been told that, that I'm a negative Nelly with respect to special tests, but I'm I, I'm just speaking the truth that these things by themselves probably don't influence our decision-making as markedly as what we think. In fact, when used incorrectly, they probably will bias to make a diagnosis that is incorrect. And that's why I'm, that I'm raised, you know, trying to raise awareness on this, and that's why I keep speaking about it. But I think for the future, what would really benefit in this area is something we're starting to see more of in the last five years, and that's modeling decision-making patterns. We know that some tests will actually give you the exact same result. For example, a, uh, the NEARS test and Hawkins-Kennedy test, this will be positive in the same people and negative in the same people. It's the same test. So if you do both of these tests in a clinical examination, you're not going to get double information. It's still only going to give you a little bit of decision-making ability. So when we model tests, we can actually cluster the right tests together. And it also gives us perspective on when we use this combination of tests, how much post-test decision-making change 
does it make? Just using tests in a serial fashion, using one test after the next test after the next test, doesn't necessarily improve uh, continuously your post-test decision-making. There's, there's going to be an end point where adding tests isn't going to be any more valuable. It's all about using the right tests in combination. And the only way to do that is through modeling. That's the only way to do it. And we're starting to see, as I said, more of that. We need more of that type of research. Um, we've done a little bit of that ourselves, and it's surprising that even in cases where you add tests that have seemingly good value together, it doesn't substantially improve the post-test probability of identifying the condition. So I think that's the biggest area. Um, it's, it's going to require good research, but it'll allow us to use the best tests, the best tests together in the right combination, and um, it'll allow us to be more specific as clinicians. Thanks, Chad. And I feel like it's a sea change. I feel like it's when evidence-based medicine was framed. I mean, clearly some folks were using evidence, but it was labeled and framed and it's really led to a big change in practice. And I think many of us have been using tests as if they were as special as the names indicated, but you have clearly shown with over 40 publications that they're not so special tests and we need to work to modeling. And clearly we can't learn this on one podcast, but people can hear you speak at conferences and they can check out your fantastic book, Orthopedic Physical Examination Tests and Evidence-Based Approach. And that subtitle is key there and you really pioneer that with your colleagues, including Eric Hegedus. I know you have a lot of credit to Mike Raymond and the group of you um, deserve a ton of credit. So thanks for your time on this podcast. Look forward to catching up with you further and we may be able to discuss the ankle or get into treatment. But I think you've really launched an important concept into the BJSM arena and we'll follow it up. Thanks a ton. Oh, it's been my pleasure and I'd be happy to come back and speak further. I think there'll be a lot of interest in that and it might be great to get some other folks on the same call like Adam Meekins and Ann Cools, for example, to talk about shoulders or Kay Crosley and Jill Cook to talk about the knee with you and take it further in that way. Thanks a ton, Chad. 